Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. I'm George Baxter, and I'm a hedge fund manager for SaberPoint Capital Management. I'm Dan Krawczyk. I'm a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Texas at Dallas. And together we explore mental models. That is how we view the world and what the world gives us for feedback. It's not a brain in a jar. That's the gist. Welcome to the Mental Models Podcast. Today we have a uh, sort of a change of pace. We'll be actually doing an interview. So both George and I are on this episode, along with Mike Hughes, our guest. And Mike is the Senior Director of Product Marketing at a company called OutSystems out of Portugal. And uh, he is a self-described Renaissance man of IT. And uh, the topic is artificial intelligence or AI. We've all heard about it in one form or another. And it's a general topic of interest uh, across the board, I think, in philosophy, in cognitive science, as well as in business. It's, it's ever-present. I, I first became familiar with AI as a term because I was studying um, cognitive science, and the, the big questions were always philosophical in nature. What's consciousness like, and do machines have it? What would it take to know if a machine is conscious? And uh, in the 1980s and onward, psychological processes became modeled by parallel distributed processing methods that emulated neural firing. So we've always thought about this, I suppose, back even as far as World War II, the brain-computer analogy. And of course, on this uh, episode, we talk about mental models. Uh, do machines have them, and how do they differ from uh, what our capabilities are, and, and what would that even look like? So uh, we are Excited to have Mike here. George, do you have any introductory remarks? Well, good. just given the uh, depth of this particular uh, topic, uh, we've decided to add something to the mix. We're, we're all enjoying a nice adult beverage uh, so that uh, we can kind of ease ourselves into uh, talking about something that is so broad and, and fascinating that, st- that stretches far beyond just finance. And this is something that machines really can't do. So we're um, enjoying our, our unique humanness, at least while it lasts, until AI takes over. The British don't mind a glass of wine. I will start there. So very much appreciated. Yeah, no doubt. And we always joke in, uh, in our shop that it's so important to finance that uh, we're really fighting against the machines. Algorithmic trading is so prevalent now in, uh, in, in the finance world. Uh, that uh, for us, it's, we, we, we like to joke that it's like we're, it's us versus Skynet. Uh, so we'll tend to focus on those things that distinguish uh, us as traders or market participants from the machines and that uh, we can talk to management and uh, we can read their body language. We can uh, understand competitive positioning of a particular entity and where what competitive advantages they may have and what what the narrative is associated with different companies that we analyze but progressively i think the machines get smarter every day and they find you know and they're playing games that that are you know in some cases i think far beyond what we're conceiving that they're doing so i'm really excited to hear what mike has to share with us today we tend to go on kind of long, so we may split this up into two different episodes. There's a lot of content here. Maybe to kick things off, could you maybe say a bit about your current position and what led you to where you are now? So, so my background is computers. As a teenager, I loved computer programming. When I discovered they had degrees in such a thing, it was a no-brainer, right? I will be the, the computer science 
Undergraduate, yes, please. I threw in French, just mix it up a little bit, a bit more culture, perhaps. Parents approved of that. But what it enabled me to do was actually spend my third year living in France. It was a, an exchange program with an engineering school. Uh, and that engineering school, I was computer science. These were engineers. They threw us out of the classroom pretty much right away. Uh, so the professors scratched their heads about what, what are we going to do with these kids? Didn't think this through very carefully from an exchange program point of view. Um, but they happened to have a postgrad research laboratory all around artificial intelligence. This was you know, somewhere in the early 90s. This was my first uh, kind of experience with artificial intelligence. And I really got hooked at that point. I spent a year breeding genetic algorithms to create neural networks to identify mushrooms, which took me an entire year, which was, was quite exciting. It was, a, it was a fun time. It was the time where Steve Jobs had those cool Next stations, those black Unix stations. So it was a lot of, a lot of exciting tech to play with. I had like 10 of these working at the same time trying to process all of this information, right? Because one thing we've seen with artificial intelligence is that it takes a lot of horsepower to really doing it anything meaningful, right? And running 10 Spark stations overnight, you could recognize some mushrooms. Now, were you trying to determine if they were edible mushrooms or just whether it was a mushroom versus some I other object? I think there it was just whether this was a mushroom versus some other object. I think the edible was even a stretch at that point in time. The edible, the edible would have required an extra probably a few days of processing overnight. Why a mushroom? Was, it, was there something about its visual features? It, it maybe it just has something to do with the college experience. I like to think that it was maybe because that was the data set that we had to hand rather than anything less savory <laughs> mushrooms can be very savory a mushroom aficionado yeah a photographer of mushrooms was in that. they probably had a good you know they got a good deal on the data set for mushrooms and that was that was what it was <laughs> they had great clip art, <laughs> clip art. <laughs> so that kind of got you going what were some interesting experiences from working in that uh early artificial intelligence lab in the 90s the magic or the allure of AI kind of, uh, I don't want to say it faded, but it became very apparent that it was, it was human limited. So as an example, so after that year, my senior year, I had more AI projects. I was kind of into it now, right? So I was like, yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take more genetic algorithms. I'm going to breed more solutions. So we had this one that was uh, breeding neural networks to control a small robot. This robot had to navigate its way around a maze without hitting anything. So I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a genetic algorithm. I'm going to breed an, a brain for this thing that allows it to avoid, you know, I had a couple of sensors, I had a couple of wheels, right? So I had outputs and inputs. And my task was to breed the solution. So part of the exercise here and one of the terms that we used was like, we need a fitness function or some way to measure success. Um, so I thought, well, fitness function for this will be go as far as you can without hitting anything. Sounds like a good way of framing success. And again, this, this was... 20, 30 years ago, right, technology didn't run as fast as it does now. So the spark stations heaving under the pressure ran overnight. Next morning, I came in and was excited to see what was happening. I ran the simulator. I had a simulator. You could run it. And uh, the thing just spun in circles. Round and round and round. So I was like, ah, outsmarted already. It's, <laughs> it's doing what I asked. It is traveling as far as it can, really, really fast and not hitting anything. It checked the box, right? I was like, ah, my fitness function needs to be adjusted. So I'm like, okay, I can. I can outsmart the machine. I will, I will come up with a different function. So it's travel as far from the point of origin as you can without hitting anything. Okay, that sounds, that sounds foolproof. Let's run this one overnight and see what happens. The next day I come in, same thing. I, you know, I, I run the simulator. I'm excited to watch. It just it careens off, missing, you know, it, it avoided the obstacles that were in its way, 
into the very far corner, didn't hit the walls. It stopped before it hit the walls and started spinning again. And it, it accomplished the goal. It moved as far as it could from the point of origin, traveled as far as it could without hitting anything. But not really the desirable results. That, that, and, that was, and then I ran out of time. So, so you made a smartass. I did. I made a smartass robot that did what it was told, but in a slightly antagonistic way. Maybe so, AI <laughs> is more human than we give it credit for. <laughs> that was, that was the, the light bulb moment for me, which was that these, the human element is, is huge here, right? Uh, these are algorithms. They're, they're mathematical problems. It's a solution space that we're searching through, and it's finding the optimal solution but we have to be able to describe that solution in the right way or it's going to find a solution that perhaps isn't really what we wanted and that's almost harder than writing the code to do everything else is understanding how you describe what success really means so that was that was kind of a light bulb moment for me and then and really from there ai kind of vanished i mean it was not you heard the odd story but the amount of processing power required really kind of it kind of went into hibernation for a couple of decades so what exactly is AI? Like, what's the definition? Yeah, I wrote it down because I figured that would be a question. So, I mean, there are lots of definitions. <laughs> but basically, it's computer systems doing things that humans can do, right, simplistically. So the Turing test, right? right. Yeah, I mean, that's the classic, right? right. What was the, uh, was it Elise? What was the, uh, the first one? That was? Eliza. Eliza, Eliza. yeah, sorry, Eliza. So I remember playing with Eliza in the Unix lab back in, you know, you're like, hi, hi, how are you today? I mean, it was... It was that basic, right? What was it, Dr. Zato? Was it was another one, right? Yeah, or it was like yeah, a, yeah. it was a therapist, and then yeah, that's right. I'd forgotten yeah, about that. Yeah. It's been a while. Is that what it would just repeat back? To yeah, you? it would say like, Whatever well, how do you feel about like you said, you know, like you'd say something, it would say, well, how do you feel about? I think that was in the forty-year-old virgin. You just asked the same question back again. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Give you a little bit of background. Be fantastic. Now I'm running product marketing for a high-tech company, based out of Portugal in a cool space called low-code application platforms. So this is basically platforms that let you build software much faster. So it's growing in a real good clip right now. I was listening to one of your podcasts about kind of, you know, that self-fulfilling, right? If you're a leader and they get to recruit the best and become even better, that's, that's kind of hopefully where we'll stay. But the pressure's on not to make a, a bad move. Yeah, the reflexivity. Yeah, exactly. Kind of, I was saying, oh, that sounds like where we are and hopefully we'll stay for at least a little bit longer. We have over a thousand different customers, and a lot of them are using AI in different ways. AI was something I was exposed to back in college, um, living in France for a year. Um, got to play with all sorts of cool toys in a post-grad lab. Genetic algorithms, breeding, neural networks kind of stuff. So it was real interesting. But then it kind of went quiet for a bit, right? The, the computer capacity wasn't really up to the challenge. And then suddenly it's back, like just in the last few years, right? A lot of these web... Cloud services now have brought kind of the power of AI to the people, democratizing AI to the point where, you know, anyone can, can use it now. So a lot of our customers are taking advantage of that and doing some cool stuff. AI has become the hot thing. The amount of horsepower that's available now, the services that are available in the cloud that you can tap into, allow you to really use it effectively. And that's been kind of, I think, the, the gating factor for a couple of decades. From the scientific perspective, I, I think the landscape sort of mirrored that as well. So there was a lot of excitement about um, neural net models back when people were really trying to emulate neural processing, like trying to understand language or perception or things like this. And then it felt like that sort of died down for a little while as brain imaging and sort of biometric approaches to the mind started to take hold. And then little by little, within the last 
five years, certainly perhaps even the last 10 years, AI has made a, a real surge. So now everything is machine learning and just getting research grants requires machine learning. It's not even clear necessarily what one is going to do with it, but it has to be there. That's part of the necessity is one of the tools yeah. of the day. I think that is reflected when I look at our customer base. I mean, looking at some stats from kind of the foresters of the world, I think you'll see that 75% of organizations are trying something with AI today, right? But a lot of people we speak to, they don't really know what to do with it. And I saw this with Watson. When Watson first came out, you know, it's just this massive engine capable of all sorts of great things. People were kind of scratching their heads like, well, what are we going to do with it? What is this? What are we going to do with this big brain? How are we going to apply it and actually solve any meaningful problems? And, and what's going to happen is these services have evolved, right? You can tap into that are much more discrete. So language um, analysis, right? Being able to understand language, being able to interpret sentiment, um, being able to interpret images, right? These services are now available. You can plug and play and solve problems in a much more meaningful manner rather than just like, I've got this amazing processing power. Now what do I do with it? So that's, I think that's, enabled industry to now start to actually take advantage of the power of AI and come up with use cases that are actually meaningful for them. That's an interesting example. I remember when Watson had played on Jeopardy rather famously, which was a rather brilliant marketing move to have Watson go up against two of the greatest human champions of Jeopardy. In cognitive science for decades, the thought of emulating semantic memory of humans was uh, sort of a holy grail. And that was quite impressive that one could create a, an engine, so to speak, that is able to not only answer meaningfully, but actually get it correct a lot of the time. But I thought one thing that was quite interesting about Watson in that case is they would give Watson's top three answers. And I recall there was like a category that had to have MC in it, like MC Hammer could have been <laughs> one of the answers. And for the humans, this was trivial. It was just something with MC in it. Frequently, Watson's answers would have motorcycle club as like the the second, and it would be like you know who wrote uh, War and Peace? Motorcycle club was the second in, and so it was a little bit revealing of how unintelligent AI could be, despite its speed and obvious uh, remarkable search power. Now, it doesn't take much to to suddenly realize that this is not a human experience, right? I mean these. This is the challenge. I mean, for most of these solutions to work, they require training, right, with data sets. And there are a couple of challenges there, right? One is that the data sets, I mean, they tend to be biased to begin with, right? It's difficult to create. And this is really the, the challenge that many organizations are facing is how do we actually train these things to begin with? Because I, I think that the technology, you know, once you get good data, you know, they'll work well. But most of the time, it's difficult to actually get good, clean data. It has to be labeled, it has to be tagged, it has to be processed in a way that makes it consumable. Otherwise, you're going to end up with unpredictable results, right? Like that as an example. I think Watson takes a lot of unstructured data, right? So it's getting whatever it can get its hands on, looking for patterns, and it's not going to know that MC doesn't mean motorcycle club. There's no context for that. So uh, its training is, is flawed, right, in that respect. It doesn't have the context. So does that come about because it doesn't have any real guidelines in terms of purpose? So one of the thoughts I've always had with AI systems, there's always science fiction concern that any artificial network is going to take over the world and eradicate humans. And to do so, it would sort of have to have some motivation and some desire to do that. And that's strikingly lacking. So it feels like when a human learns, let's say a toddler is learning, 
they seem to attend to the function of things right away. They're very egotistical and it's very much about them. And machine learning obviously doesn't have that sort of ego-driven, um, you know, sort of blinders as to what it finds relevant. And so would that be one of the differences? We, in some ways, we need to be very self-focused as a being in order to develop. Yeah, I think those are kind of qualities that enable humans to survive, right, that machines don't have. I think of these as algorithms that, that a human created, right? So even from a Jeopardy perspective, right, somebody had to train Watson to be able to play a game, right? This is, that's, you know, the, he could have been identifying mushrooms, right? Which would have been, you know, there would have been different results there. But the outcome is determined by the human beings that are saying, yes, in this situation, I want AI to lead to this kind of result. Whereas a, an infant, you know, it's a completely different set of priorities that are from within, right? Versus there's someone else saying, yes, this is the sort of result I'd like for this type of problem. You give me the best result you can, right? Based on the inputs, and the inputs are another area where we're limited, right, from an AI perspective. We're training these algorithms um, to do certain things. What do we choose as inputs, right? Is the input for answering quiz games basically the internet and every article you've ever imagined out there, right? Is that your source to be able to answer questions? Or if you are, you know, in trading, is it like four elements of, of the trade? Why, what do you pick versus other things, right? How do you determine the inputs to lead you to the outputs. Those are all human decisions that are being made. Um, and really, the AI is just kind of the piece in the middle that's kind of coming up with a formula, a set of algorithms to get you there. And this is another, it's an interesting point to bring up this idea of overfitting for patterns. So that's something I've heard about computer scientists talk a lot about is when when you train it an algorithm up with a, a data set, it will overlearn to certain features to where let's say it's the mushroom sorting algorithm yeah. and it, it gets a uh, it, it sort of gets over fixated on a particular mushroom cap i guess would be a major feature and and therefore it can't recognize even a subtle difference yeah, uh, in that in that, that case and it becomes kind of useless right it's learned it too it well. is it's overtrained these all relate to other decisions that humans need to make which is like how many neurons do i have how many layers do i have how are they interconnected all of those things affect kind of the way that the algorithm can learn and its ability to adapt over time versus just memorize, basically, right? So these are effectively memorization algorithms in certain situations, right? If you don't have enough layers, enough neurons, right? But if you go too far, then it's kind of the other extreme. They're unable to, to predict anything, right? Like these are decisions humans... Can you talk a little bit more about popularity and how close are we to? The, the point in time where you develop a machine, modify itself, and improve itself and then eventually to take out of humanity's hands. Yeah. Elon Musk has expressed deep concern that Skynet will rise up and take over the, the world. I don't fear that so much. My fear is that things will just be, become so sophisticated that we won't be able to fix them in enough time that it would require humans to really work well together to be able to fix the stuff that we've created. It would just take too long. One lifetime is not long enough. To me, that's the downfall. Less worried about the singularity, I feel like the, uh, to me, these are just algorithms. It's just math, and it's math that humans create, and humans' mental capacity is only so great, right? So, you know, in terms of what we can imagine and create, right, it's kind of limited by our own imagination. Now, you know, then there's kind of the second degree, right, things that can create other things, but they're, they're still operating based on what they were kind of given as initial parameters, right? So I kind of, I'm skeptical that they'll 
perhaps lead to that kind of a problem. Could be proven wrong, but uh, hopefully, hopefully not. I think the idea is, is that you get to a point where you make a machine that can make a machine that's better than it. Yeah. And then that machine could then make a machine that makes a machine yeah. that's better than yeah, it. It's a recursive yeah. situation, right? I think the, uh, we've got a ways to go for that happens. So one thing that's interesting when you talk about markets and you have, we see algorithms that are in, present in the market. If there is some correlation that they identify, they don't last right? So you may have an algorithm that finds a, a correlation between one set of data and price, and then they adjust price based off of that, and then other algorithms respond to that adjustment. And so you just kind of like an ever-changing data set that it loses its consistency. I mean, I think, so these are things that are beyond the control of, of what you're training, right? You're training based on number of inputs, but you can't anticipate these inputs didn't ever anticipate having another algorithm doing the same thing on the other side, right? And, and, and how that would interact and, and invalidate basically the training set. So there's this notion of retraining, right? I think from what I understand, a lot of these algorithms need to be retrained on a regular basis, right? To be useful. Um, so that's maintenance and upkeep, right? Someone's got to be. So, you know, if, if we're worried about job replacement, you know, the guy or girl who has to retrain the algorithm, right? Those are, those are the new sorts of jobs that are coming up in, the, in these areas because it's, there's a lot of maintenance and upkeep to, to make these things useful because they have to compensate for everything else that's happening at the same time. I wonder if there are uh, algorithms out there that are anticipating other algorithms. So <laughs> like they, they notice there's some sort of pattern that somebody's trading along. And we, we have like trading algos that we'll put in. The most common one is what's called a VWAP. It's a value averaged purchase, or, right? So the more volume there is for at a particular price, your algorithm will purchase the stock at that volume, right? And it runs throughout the day. They have another one that's called a TWAP, which is just a time-sliced purchase. And then we know that whenever we turn any of these on, that we're getting robbed by some algorithm that knows those algorithms are out there. And they're like, oh, there's a VWAP. I'm going to go get paid, right? Because they'll get in front of it in some sort of a way. The thing is, is there's seven or eight other algorithms that are doing the same thing at the same time. So they're all stepping on each other. And a lot of this algorithmic trading now, the results are, you know, there's just diminishing returns for a lot of them, except for the very best. Uh, there's an outfit called Renaissance Technologies, which is the most successful hedge fund in history. They had something like, you know, 40% average annual return. You do the math on that, 40%. Yeah. It, it starts to become the economy if it, you know, if it goes on for too long. It's run by a, a lot of rocket scientists, and everything's very secretive. Uh, eventually, they fired all of their clients, and it was just the money of the, the employees yeah. that actually worked at the business. And uh, they would find correlations all over the place, you know, and mathematics that I have no hope of ever understanding. Yeah. In that situation, the machine's winning because of the automation and the speed, and they're, they're probably getting information that would have been impossible for humans to collect manually but there's still a huge amount of input from you know from the phds that are deciding what to do right there's so much human involvement there's not much autonomy right the, the algorithms by themselves are useless they have to have this human element otherwise they really are, are unusable which i think is this is kind of the common theme i see is that without humans giving direction these things are, are, are pretty much lost there's no cause right what am i what am i here to do you're going to solve a problem, but humans have to say what the problem is. Humans have to provide the inputs to that problem. 
Got it. Otherwise, they spin around in a circle in the room. <laughs> they spin around. That's an interesting point when we think about humans, right? And what causes us to make decisions and to uh, move in certain directions. Like pure logic never gets you anywhere, right? If you're just like, I am just going to be Spock and I'm going to do everything I'm going to do is going to be perfectly logical. You'll never get out of bed because there's no reason, right? There's no, there's no compelling, motivating force for you to make any sort of a decision if you have no emotion. And this is something that in the cognitive science world, is, it's called embodied cognition, that our algorithms of our brains live within this biological system that is heavily visual, you know, takes in some level of sound information, not the full spectrum. We're tactile and we're bimanual, and those things shape a lot of what we do. So, um, you know, navigating and interacting is, is the limits are set by our height and our speed and all of these sorts of things. So when you think, we start to think about comparative cognition, like um, orca whales are enormously bright, as are dolphins, yet their cognition is very alien to us, and it would be because they're so sound-based and they can echolocate and they can travel at much greater speeds. They're in such a, a more sparse environment. And so that's an important point at a very deep philosophical point that cognition is shaped in a sense by, by what your boundaries are. So AI has almost no fixed boundaries, and in some ways it doesn't have motivation or emotion because it it's not trying to do anything on its own. Is that the way you would think about it, Mike? Yeah, I mean, I just think about it as a, it's a set of formulas that might be helpful under certain situations. It's got no, there's no ambition or intent. It's just uh, kind of waiting to receive inputs. And it's going to take those inputs and it's going to do something on how it was trained. It's a really rich topic. We talked to Mike Hughes today in this episode about artificial intelligence and some of the general principles. We'll go on and do a part two with Mike with some applications. See you next time. Sounds great. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thank you for spending your time listening to the Mental Models podcast. Content matters because your brain does not exist in a jar. Please subscribe. Visit mentalmodelspodcast.com for updates on Dan and George's upcoming book release titled Understanding Behavioral Bias, A Guide to Improving Financial Decision Making. Also available on mentalmodelspodcast.com are show notes, book reviews, and upcoming behavioral finance seminars with Dan and George. The Mental Models Podcast can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Twitter. Please subscribe, and thank you for listening.